Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us safely to a new week. We pray for your Holy Spirit to fill our minds and our mouths as we seek to understand and share the truth of what's found in Jeremiah 23 and 24. Bless our conversation, bless our lives. May all that we are and all that we say today be in service to you and your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who shepherd my people. It is you who have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. So I will attend to you for your evil doing, says the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them, and they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought the people of Israel up out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought out and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the land of the north and out of all the lands where he had driven them, then they shall live in their own land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They are deluding you. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to all who stubbornly follow their own stubborn hearts, they say, no calamity shall come upon you. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people and they would have turned them from their evil ways and from the evil of their doings. Am I a God nearby, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesied lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will the hearts of the prophets ever turn back those who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart. They plan to make my people forget my name by their dreams, and they tell one another, just as their ancestors forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let the one who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? See, therefore, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words from one another. See, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their own tongues and say, says the Lord. See, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, says the Lord, 
and who tell them and who lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or appoint them so they do not profit this people at all, says the Lord. When this people or a prophet or a priest asks you, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, you are the burden and I will cast you off, says the Lord. The Lord showed me two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. This was after King Nebuchadrezzar of Babylon had taken into exile from Jerusalem, King Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the artisans and the smiths, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs, the good figs very good, and the bad figs very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad that they cannot be eaten, so will I treat King Zedekiah of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who live in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror, an evil thing, to all the kingdoms of the earth, a disgrace, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they are utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their ancestors. Okay. So let's go back to the top, Jeremiah 23, where Jeremiah denounces the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. And there's this promise that uh, God will raise up a new shepherd who will shepherd God's people where the people will no longer fear, nor will any be missing. Um, you know, to me, this points so clearly to the ministry of Jesus, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Those who came before me were thieves and bandits. Uh, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Or there's that wonderful image of the shepherd tending the hundred sheep, and one of them gets away. And this shepherd leaves the 99 behind to go find that one sheep that was missing because the good shepherd does not allow any to go missing. Uh, and when Jesus used all this imagery about himself, obviously all the background that we're reading here in Jeremiah would have been on the forefront of his mind where it was the shepherds uh, who were scattering the sheep of his pasture. And here, Jeremiah is not talking about, you know, the pagan priests of Baal. He's not talking about the pagan nations who are oppressing the righteous. He's talking about uh, the priests and the temple leaders. He's talking about those in power. And they're the shepherds who are scattering the sheep of God. And 
So here, this is really hard. It's the church leaders who are being judged. And, you know, for people like myself, it's a good reminder that, you know, it's kind of risky business going into pastoral ministry because God entrusts us with his own sheep and asks us to tend those sheep faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully. Uh, but here the shepherds are scattering the flock of God, driving them away. There's this great line, you have not attended to them, so I will attend to you. And of course, it kind of works in English, but in Hebrew, this is a real zinger because the word attend has several different meanings. It can mean uh, to visit or to take care of as when you attend to a wound, uh, or it can mean to punish. I'm going to attend to you for what you did. And so here there's a little bit of a wordplay because my shepherds have not cared for the sheep. I'm going to punish them for what they're doing. That's kind of the, the force of the pun in Hebrew. And then it says, I myself will gather the flock. I myself, who's speaking here? The Lord is speaking. And so again, whenever Jesus claims to be the one who gathers the flock of God, um, you know, there's many verses we could point to, but one of those would be in the gospel of John when Jesus says, um, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring in and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Here, you know, Jesus is standing in that space of the Lord who speaks, I will gather them in, I will bring them back. And then there's that echo of the Genesis language, they shall be fruitful and multiply, right? That is the benediction of God in the book of Genesis. It's what Adam and Eve are granted to do, to be fruitful and multiply. And of course, that blessing turns to a curse when they go into exile. So this bringing back of the language of Genesis 1 is, in a sense, a promise to bring us back to the garden. You know, one of the things we're going to find is that, in a sense, this is the story of the Garden of Eden all over again, right? Where the people are driven out for their disobedience. They have to leave the garden. They have to leave the promised land. And the question is, will they go with God's protection and will God bring them back? Because remember, you know, Adam and Eve, they, they had to leave, but God also dressed them, right? God dressed them in garments of skins, meaning a sacrifice had been made. And God, in a sense, attended to his people, even as he sent them into exile. And so this, this um, redoing of Eden, where people are kind of forced out of the garden, but then uh, God promises to bring them back. Uh, a lot of that is going to be part of the imagery of Jeremiah 23. Now, in verse 5, we have the days are surely coming. I love that biblical phrase. The days are surely coming. You can count on the day coming. Uh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. Okay, so who are we talking about here? Are we talking about someone different then the shepherd who will shepherd God's people in verse four? Are we talking about someone different than the one who will gather the remnant of God's flock? No, we're talking about the same person. The shepherd is the one who shall reign as king. 
And again, if this doesn't bring to mind messianic imagery, right, of Jesus, the good shepherd, entering Jerusalem the final week of his life, uh, being granted with shouts of Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, um, that's where I want your mind to go. Because this king Jeremiah speaks of, he never shows up in the book of Jeremiah. You know, this king is not Zedekiah. This king is not the late Josiah. This is no king we read about in first or second chronicles this is a future king who will deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in a way that the previous kings were unable to do right so this again is pointing to a future king which we as christians believe uh, is fulfilled in the person of jesus christ um therefore the days are coming when it's no longer longer going to be said, you know, uh, as the Lord brought the people out of Egypt, but as the Lord who brought out and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the land of the north where he had driven them. So basically what we have here is a repeat of the Exodus, because in a sense, what the exile is with King Nebuchadnezzar, um, I always say Nebuchadnezzar, it's not spelled that way. Um, but what the what this exile is going to be, uh, it's going to be, in a sense, going back to the book of Exodus whenever they labored under Pharaoh. They weren't free. They needed liberation. And so God's going to bring them back to that place, and that's going to call for a new exodus, a new setting God's people free from bondage. And so one of the hints we get in the Old Testament is that we have these patterns of slavery and redemption, uh, of falling back into not being free and God setting his people free. Uh, and, and all of this for Christians prefigures the great new exodus where God brings us out of sin and death and into the promised land of God's grace and favor. But again, what's going to happen historically to God's people here is going to mirror what happened with the exodus. Now, you got some people saying this isn't going to happen. You got some prof prophets who, uh, in verse 16, are speaking visions of their own minds. Um, and we're told that they're saying it shall be well with you, um, verse 17, and that they are stubbornly following their own stubborn hearts. And that word stubborn, it's also translated in the Old Testament as stiff-necked. It's the same word as in Exodus 32, when the Lord says to Moses, I've seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. And so you have the prophets speaking visions of their own mind, and those visions um, flow from a heart that is stubborn, that is hard. And this stubborn heart uh, in a sense, is meant to mirror the hard heart of Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. His heart grew more and more stubborn. And with that stubborn heart came greater and greater plagues. And so it's almost like the prophets here are standing in the place of Pharaoh, refusing to submit to God's truth and God's liberation and God's judgment. Uh, verse 21 God says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. Uh, Jeremiah is not talking about running a marathon. Um, didn't really come through in English very well, but in the Hebrew, 
it kind of means to run ahead. The basic idea is that the false prophets are running ahead of God by delivering messages that God actually hasn't given them. And this is significant because what does God always tell his faithful people? God tells them to wait upon the Lord, right? Wait upon the Lord, wait for the word of the Lord, faithfully be still and know that I am God, sit still and watch my salvation, right? But the prophets are running ahead. And for me, this raises the question, you know, where do we often run ahead of God instead of waiting upon the Lord? Where do we stubbornly insist on, um, um, you know, that the visions of our own deluded mind are true? Where do we run ahead of God um, rather than sit still? And basically what God says is no one's going to get away with this, right? Verse 23, uh, who can hide in the secret places so that I cannot see them? Do I not fill heaven and earth, right? So God's omnipresence, that's a theological term, is being emphasized. There is no place in this creation where God is not found. Trying to hide from God would be like, you know, a little kid playing hide and go seek with Sherlock Holmes in a telephone booth. The kid's just not going to win, right? Sherlock Holmes is going to find him. So how much more will God, who is everywhere, see and hear what these prophets are doing? Um, and what God basically says in verse 27 is that they plan to make my people forget my name, forget my name. Um, what does God always tell us to do? God tells us to remember, right? Remember that I'm the Lord, your God. Um, share this Passover meal to remember your liberation from Egypt. Uh, what do we do at the Lord's uh, Supper or the Eucharist every Sunday? We do these things, as Jesus said, to remember him. Do this in remembrance of me. The reason we have to remember is because Christian piety is ultimately about remembering our story and rooting our life in that story, but the people have forgotten, right? And, and these um, prophets... It's not mere incompetency. There's something active about it. Jeremiah says, they plan to make my people forget my name. They're not just slipping into poor behavior. This is a very intentional effort to go a different direction. And God asks the question, what does straw have in common with wheat? And here, uh, wheat is divine revelation and straw is the empty or deceptive messages. And so to me, this raises the question, do we know the difference between straw and wheat? Do we know the difference between genuine wisdom that comes from God or the Holy Spirit and then you know modern worldly nonsense that's gonna lead us astray? And I get that it's tricky. I mean, you know, on the one hand, part of me says, well, it's not the people's fault. You know, they're just listening to the prophets. I mean, how are they supposed to know what's true and what's not true? Jeremiah is telling them one thing. The false prophets are telling them something else. You know, they're just, you know, caught in the crossfires here. But the truth is, is that the reason they don't know the difference between straw and wheat, it goes back to that verse around their stubborn hearts. And this is going to be called God's complaint. And why the promise will be that God will give each of us a heart to know him, right? Ultimately, the question is, do we have a heart to know God so that 
we know the difference between a word that represents God well and a word that doesn't represent God well. So do we know the difference between straw and wheat? And is our heart connected enough with God's heart so we can tell the difference? In verse 33, Jeremiah says, when this people asks, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall say, you are the burden of the Lord. And again, this is just a, a, another Hebrew zinger of sorts because the word burden has two different meanings. The burden of the Lord can be a prophetic message or a divine revelation. Uh, and the burden in Hebrew can also be the same thing it means here, like a heavy weight that weighs you down. And so there's a little bit of a wordplay here where Jeremiah says, when people ask you, what is the burden, i.e., what is the prophetic message the Lord would give? The answer is, you are the weight. You are the dead weight. You're the one weighing God down. Um, basically, the message is, uh, we have seen the enemy and it is us, right? That's kind of the modern day way we we phrase this. Or if you like Michael Jackson, if you want to make the world a better place, um, you know, I'm looking at the man in the mirror, uh, take a look at yourself and make a change. Or I think Gandhi said, uh, everyone wants to start the world, start with yourself. Basically, Jeremiah's message to them is there is a huge problem and it is you. And so if you want to please God, uh, look at your own life and repent. And I think that, you know, I, I think none of us like that language of being a burden. So we can we can uh, change our language there if that's a stumbling block. But I do think it's worth looking at the manner in which we are the greatest obstacle to what God wants to do in the world through us, right? Because so often we point the finger. We play the victim. Someone else needs to change. Someone else is the problem. It's that politician who I don't like. If he would only change, there'd be justice. And, you know, it's that, that priest I don't like. It's that program I don't like. It's that culture I don't like. And we're always you know, saying, well, if someone else would change, the world would be much better. But what we forget is that the only leverage we have is over our own life. And so what about us? Where do we need to change? Where are we the burden that needs to repent? I think it's a good question that this chapter raises. So by the time we get to Jeremiah 24, we have this interesting parable about good and bad figs. And we're told that this was after King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had taken into exile um, all the officials and King Jeconiah and uh, Jehoiakim and the artisans and the smiths. And if you're like me, you're wondering, well, when did this happen? I mean, what do you mean? This is after the exile has happened? We've been talking about it. We've been warning about it. Uh, how are we now after the exile has happened? And just a good reminder that the book of Jeremiah doesn't always go chronologically. And we are now skipping ahead to after King Nebuchadnezzar has taken people into exile. And uh, the basket of good figs uh, represent those who uh, have gone into exile and submitted to the discipline of God. Verse four, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah. And I just want to bracket those seven words, I will regard as good the exiles. Uh, to me, this is part of what grace is. 
It's whenever God regards um, the disobedient exiles as good in spite of our deserving. Because in a sense, we are invited to read this as those who have been exiled. We live our life east of Eden. We wait for God to bring us home. Um, we might not think that we deserve to live in exile, but you know, Scripture is clear that one way or another we have a role in this mess. And yet God regards us in Christ as good. God regards you as good, even when your behavior is not good. So this is a wonderful little nugget of grace that I find in scripture here. Nevertheless, uh, God says, I'm going to set my eyes upon them from good. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to build them up, not tear them down. I'm going to plant them, not pluck them up. This is mirroring the language of Jeremiah chapter one. And then the great verse, I'm going to give them a heart to know that I am the Lord they shall be my people. I will be their God. They will return to me with their whole heart. Now, a few things here. Notice that no one's going to return to God with their whole heart until God actually gives them the heart to know that he is the Lord. This is just a good reminder that whatever that dance is between God's action and human agency, you know, Augustine called this provenient grace. Grace is always on the scene um, before we're even able to repent properly. And, and I get that's a great mystery, uh, but it's not that God waits us with our own kind of willpower to make the first move and God takes us back, that God is actively giving his people a heart to know that he's the Lord, and that's going to help them return to him with their whole heart. And so the, this is a beautiful promise, right? The people have gone into exile, and God basically says, I'm going to regard them as good. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to save them. I'm going to bring them back to the garden. But then you've got these bad figs, and they're so bad they can't be eaten. And then you've got King Zedekiah and the remnant of Jerusalem and uh, those who have stayed behind. And um, their lot will not be as great as those who have gone into exile. Uh, just just to understand kind of who everyone is, um, uh, earlier King Jeconiah was referenced. Uh, he did not reign very long, and I think like a month, and we have different kind of places in scripture that speak about what happened to him. Uh, King Zedekiah, he's a little bit more prominent in the book of Jeremiah, and basically what King Zedekiah does, and and I think what this verse speaks to is that he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, we're going to find out what happens to him and his sons later on in this study. But part of what I think is happening here is that Zedekiah and those who stay behind, uh, I think they're symbolic of those who refuse to embrace um, God's discipline and to go into exile and they continue to fight and they continue to use their own resources. They continue to rely on the messages of false prophets and it just doesn't work. And so part of, I think, what is, and this is really going to be set up uh, for whenever we get to Jeremiah 29, which is going to be the next thing we look at about how they are to live in the land. Part of what God is asking the people to do is actually to go into exile faithfully and to trust that God will bring them back, that they can't defeat Nebuchadnezzar with their own resources, to take responsibility for their sins and their behavior that have led to this moment, 
but also to seek the Lord's mercy and to trust that God alone can bring them back and give them a heart to know that he is the Lord. And I think that's ultimately what God is asking of his people, uh, to trust God throughout this process. And so just a few questions, you know, uh, what does it mean for us to cultivate a heart that seeks the Lord in our lives? Um, you know, this uh, set of chapters is all about God's promise to bring the exiles back. Um, I think it begs the question for each of us, you know, how does this promise of restoration encourage us in times of struggle? If someone were to ask you, how are you in exile right now in your life? You know, where do you feel in your bones as if you've been kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Um, I think we're invited to identify with that and to trust that God is the one who will bring us back. And then last but not least, there's this great verse around attending to God's people. And even though that is written for religious leaders like myself, um, in a sense, we're all leaders. And so the question is, what does it mean to attend to others, right? To not be those who scatter the flock of God, but to be those who attend to care for God's sheep, knowing that ultimately God's heart is for there to be one flock and one shepherd.